Is digital currency and digital IDs a threat to our Canadian society? Or are they simply tools that can be used by those who wield them? Is it about privacy or so much more? My guest today, Hatem Kier, is one of the determined members of the litigation team at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms and is expertly positioned to comment on the warning signs of digital ID legislation and the failures of the Arrive Can Act. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Well, Hatem, it's good to have you with me. Thanks, Leon. It's good to be here. We're going to talk about a lot of really important things. And uh, you're with the JCCF, and they just released a report in regards to digital IDs, uh, the major pitfalls. So right off the hop, this is not a good idea, is it? Uh, no. Um, so the thing about digital ID is at the end of the day, it's a technology, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Technology can be used for good or for bad. There, there's probably legitimate reasons to want to be able to prove someone's identity in a digital sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, but the issue is it creates a massive lever of control that has the potential to be abused. So if you have a government who's honorable, integrous, etc., um, then maybe you wouldn't have to worry as much. But I don't think there's ever, ever been a government anywhere that has all the people in their government honorable, integrous and uh, etc. So it can be used for like what? what? What does this digital ID, how can it be used to hurt people? Well, uh, fundamentally digital ID, like I said, it's a way of proving who you are in a, mm -hmm. either an online uh, setting or perhaps by using your phone in person. Uh, but from there, it has the potential to centralize various aspects of our life. Uh, so, for example, all your IDs can be connected to it. It can be used as the uh, the point of contact for accessing healthcare. Uh, it can be used to access your banking. And once all those facets of our life are centralized into one point of control, uh, it's very easy for that point of control to be, uh, so to speak, shut off at will. So, so you uh, like the you like the fact that. Because kids, seem, the younger they are, the more they lean to like to have everything's about being easy, quick, easy, quick. But what I'm hearing you say is that you like the fact that a lot of this, your identification medically, uh, governmentally, uh, etc., you like them being separated. It creates a certain uh, degree of security. So, you know, earlier back in February, there was the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa. And in response to that, the federal government uh, froze many people's bank accounts, not just protesters, but people who donated to the uh, to the Freedom Convoy. The, the government didn't need a digital ID to be able to do that. But having access to that kind of technology would make it uh, all, the, all the easier. So in the same way, uh, through using vaccine passports, the government was able to restrict people from accessing various uh, services. Uh, now, imagine just tying in people's banking and finances to that. It, it creates one one device, one uh, account that the government could use to uh, to punish uh, dissent or uh, behavior that it disapproves of. Yeah, one of the concerns I've heard from people is that if you got a digital ID and a digital currency, man, do they have power over you. Could you explain that to me? Because is it a coincidence that they're both being introduced simultaneously? 
Uh, no, I don't think it is. And the thing about uh, discussing digital ID and digital currency is these things obviously haven't been implemented yet. So we have to look to see what the various parties that are advocating it for are saying they want to do with it. So, for example, one of the, uh, the sources we can look to to understand exactly what's intended uh, in terms of a digital ID is something called uh, the DIACC. That's the Digital Identification and Authentication Council of Canada. This is an organization that's made up of uh, governments and also uh, private organizations, including uh, banks, insurance companies, uh, credit check companies, uh, and they're the members of this organization whose stated goal is to promote the adoption of a digital identity across Canada. And they want you, to. Yes, that's that's their stated goal. And if you look at what they see a digital ID being used for, uh, they want a digital ID to be used for uh, for proving your identity to access government services, for voting, for accessing healthcare or medical records. Uh, and also for being able to conduct transactions. So it could be tied into a digital currency. And, uh, you know, like you said, there's also uh, government institutions that are discussing promoting a, a digital currency. Uh, the Bank of Canada has stated that they are developing the technology to uh, implement a, a central bank digital currency, they call it. You know, people often say, like, what's the concern if they know where you are, who you are, what you've got, who, you know, uh, if you have nothing to hide. Is that a good argument? No, it's not. And it's the kind of argument that runs totally counter to our, our whole system of rights. You have a right to remain silent when speaking to the police. It doesn't matter if you have something to hide or not. That, that's your right. You, you, have, uh, you have a right to, to liberty doesn't mean you have to trust, oh, you have nothing to worry about if you're doing nothing wrong. The government's not going to stop you uh, from living freely. Well, that's not, that's not how our system of rights work. Our system of rights places restraints on what the government can do, what they can know about us, in order to create, at the end of the day, a healthy relationship between the individual and the state. I think that, you know, people who opened up Canada, America, I think they had a huge distrust of governments. Uh, and leadership when they came, you know, and wanted to start new democracies or however you want to call it. They usually came from countries where they were controlled, attacked. So I, I would agree with you that just to say, well, the government's going to look after us, everything's going to be fine, you have nothing to worry about, but you're always dealing with a person. And it's not just this innocuous, you know, organization called the government, it's the people within it that can can do bad things with all this power, this access to everything about you, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's so many reasons to want to restrain a government's power in that sense. I mean, uh, like you alluded to, there's actual bad actors, people who are in bad faith or trying to, uh, out, out of corruption or, or some other uh, negative motive, trying to harm people. Uh, but there's also disagreements. Part of living in the kind of society we live in are that people have different views about what the good life is, how people ought to conduct themselves and how people ought to live their lives. And having part of having a limited government means that people have the freedom to to explore those different uh, those different directions that they want to take their lives in. Uh, you know, especially over the last uh, what five years, it seems like there's a lot of really fundamental issues that have boiled up in our society. And having a, a government have that, uh, that lever of control, uh, 
in this case of digital ID, uh, just allows every single one of those issues to become also uh, to become uh, utilized to be uh, enforced through that kind of technology. China keeps coming up uh, when I when people are talking about this. Do they have some form of digital ID in place, or, or what's do you think about China when it comes to this? Yeah. So in so China, uh, it's often referred to as a social credit system. Essentially, uh, Chinese citizens and and not just citizens, but people who visit the country have uh, an account that's created, uh, connected to their their identity, and there's points assigned to the account. And through the the Chinese government's massive surveillance system, whether that's uh, through online means or through cameras spread around the country or through people who, who their job is to report on their fellow citizens, uh, the, the government is able to observe and catch behavior that they disapprove of and uh, dock people points for that uh, or to reward behavior that they do approve of. And uh, essentially, if uh, someone loses points, they lose privileges. So that can mean uh, losing the uh, school choices for their children, can mean losing the ability to travel. Uh, so for example, in 2019, uh, over two and a half million people were barred from air travel. Uh, 90,000 were barred from rail travel because of their low social credit scores. In China? Yes. And that's a direction we're moving into if we're gonna continue to do this. Yeah, I think it serves as a warning. Um, I do think uh, in fairness, it's possible to make too much of, of the Chinese example. Uh, right. look, at, look at the COVID response, right? Uh, in, in some ways, there was very similar to the response here in terms of lockdowns, uh, but in, in a lot of ways, it was very different. It was, it was you could characterize it as more of a, uh, a hard totalitarian approach in China. Uh, right. uh, most likely, the implementation of a kind of digital ID system in Canada would look very Canadian. Uh, but nonetheless, the uh, what the Chinese state is doing really serves as a kind of uh, warning, uh, the canary in the coal mine about the degree right. of control that these technologies can be used for and the, the harms that they can be uh, used to perform. Well, when you take a look at Canada, um, I was just speaking with a gentleman who said that I think we're the only country left that is, you know, has its borders shut down, etc. Uh, unless you're going to do what the government says about health care, vaccinations, etc. Um, so it's interesting when you look at this digital ID, digital currency, and uh, the, you know, the government trying to, its ideology being enforced, it's much easier to, to bring a nation to its knees if you've got a digital ID and a digital currency. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we can see, uh, you know, just again, look, look to the last two years for an example of what our own government would do with these kinds of technologies. Uh, on the federal level, there's the ArriveCan app. It, it's not a digital ID program, but nonetheless, it, it goes to show what this technology can be used for. To, to this day, uh, if someone is unvaccinated trying to return to the country, or even if they are vaccinated and choose not to use the app due to privacy concerns, uh, they're gonna be subjected to a, a two-week quarantine. Um, uh, also- fines as well. Yes, yes, uh, heavy fines. And um, on, on a provincial level, back in 2021, uh, most, if not all provinces implemented some form of a vaccine passport. And so, for example, here in Ontario, where I am, uh, 
uh, an app was actually used to enforce that vaccine passport. And the app was developed by the same government agency that is developing the app to be used for a digital ID. They shifted their focus to, to develop the vaccine app. And now that that's done, uh, they're returning to their original focus. Another thing that I hear uh, coming up has got to do with um, all the green stuff that people are talking about, emissions, the et cetera, that well, you, you were mentioning China and how you can be um, punished or controlled if you don't adapt to it. But the environmental, the environmental issues that are going on right now and the WF backing Canada in this transition, what are your thoughts on all that? So the, you know, in terms of trying to achieve uh, climate goals, that's mm -hmm. one purpose that the digital ID could be used for. Yep. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's not so much the purpose that's the, the real trouble. It's the, it's the tool in the hands of the government. Right. Uh, just to return to what we said uh, earlier, the people who crafted the, the governments that we have here in Canada or in the States, they were wary not of a specific viewpoint that the government might have, but rather that no matter who has the reins of government, they're limited in what they can do. Uh, in a certain sense, digital ID is kind of the opposite of that. It is, it is the ultimate degree of control. Very true. Um, some of the people that I've been speaking with say that even when it comes to doing business, uh, just talking in regards to the environmental stuff, you know, if there's companies that are apparently in place who are grading every other company in their mind, how green are you? And then they'll be able to encourage people to not uh, do business with you because you're not green enough. Um, with digital currency and that, they could even, you know, use that to stop. When it comes to business, would that be possible? Absolutely. Um, in, in China, just to return to that as an example, uh, their social credit systems do uh, do cover businesses, and certainly the they are used whether uh, in good faith or just as a pretense to enforce uh, uh, financial goals. So, for example, uh, there was a, a case in China where some investors had uh, potentially been defrauded, and they wanted to head to the the headquarters of their of the bank in order to deal with the funds that had been frozen. And in response to that, uh, their COVID uh, uh, their COVID passport app—it's a kind of red light, yellow light, green light system—all became red lights despite coming from non-COVID areas, and they were very quickly shuttled off to quarantine hotels under the guard of police. Uh, so again, even though they were coming from non-COVID areas, uh, but they did publicize their intent to go and try and uh, address their grievances with the bank. Uh, so. At, just as a, it was being used as a tool to silence that kind of dissent. So again, if it's implemented, the environment could be even the pretext to, to implement ulterior motives. So when you look at, so I heard you mention earlier in our conversation that when you look at government and you look at the citizens, it was in our forefathers' intentions to limit the government's ability to take away freedoms, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, here so, in Canada, most you know, more recently with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So then, what should the average Canadian do? Like a lot of people are going to just say, "Well, all this stuff, all this change is coming at me like it's like just coming like a stampede." 
what should I do? Should I be concerned? You're saying yes. Uh, what should we do if we go, okay, I don't want to be involved in a digital ID. How can I begin to stop this? What can the average citizen do to say, no, I don't want this direction for Canada? The very first thing uh, people should do is get informed. Uh, a lot of this has been happening for quite some time now. Uh, the DIACC uh, was formed in 2012. Uh, the, here in Ontario, the group that was developing the what's going to be the digital ID program was doing that before COVID was an issue. So the first thing is to just be aware that this is happening. Be aware that various government institutions have made this a goal of theirs and to be alive to that and to spread the word, inform uh, our fellow citizens and, and make it an issue that that matters and, and holds uh, politicians to account. Uh, but then ultimately, you know, if, if all those other steps along the way fail, uh, kind of our last defense is the legal defense. It's once those rights have been infringed, uh, that's when uh, Canadians can use the charter and go to courts to seek redress. So the digital ID in itself isn't an infringement or how they use it, which would it be? Uh, the devil's in the details. It, it really does depend on how it's used. So for example, if it was completely voluntary, People can always waive their charter rights. People can always consent to do something that might otherwise violate their rights. For example, if a police officer shows up to your house, you can't just search your house, but you're free to let him in. So if a digital ID exists as a kind of convenient alternative, then it probably doesn't violate people's charter rights. But to the extent that it's made mandatory, to the extent that it's uh, it requires the disclosure of information or it's perhaps uh, covertly collecting information like location data uh, or to the extent that even if it's used voluntarily it then becomes a tool of control so uh, we have rights there there are several rights in our charter that protect freedom from various different uh, angles we have our fundamental freedoms that protect our rights to religion uh, freedom of expression and so on uh, but we also have a right to liberty and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So if the government were, for example, to use a digital ID currency to freeze currencies in a way that restricted people's liberty, uh, that could act as a, a, a right that's been infringed that people could uh, seek to have the courts enforce. So as technology gets better and better, uh, which is what is happening year after year. Um, we're going to have to have, like you said, I, I agree with that, on a real awareness that to, have, uh, to make your life easier and easier and more secure and more secure, uh, that you're probably going to have to give up freedoms and we're going to have to decide at some point, no. I had a, a friend from uh, Africa come and, and he's a Canadian now and he's just said I can't believe how much security you guys want and you don't realize you keep giving up freedom for this incredible security that you want where he said where we are I'd rather have my freedoms and look after myself than give up all these rights so I can just be completely protected in every area how do you respond to that uh, yeah as technology gets better it a lot of things become, they change from a question of can we do it to should we do it. Exactly. And so the better technology gets, the more we have to confront uh, questions about what kind of a society want, we want to live in. Uh, is, do we choose convenience over liberty? Do we choose security over liberty? 
uh, or we do we want a society where people have a private life to themselves that's uh, that there's a certain sphere of within their lives that they can choose to share with others or not to share uh, that there's a certain sphere of uh, activity that people are free to engage in uh, and again just to go back to the the founding principles of our society our founders at the time considered things like the practice of religion the uh, the expression of opinions about uh, religious truths or philosophical truths or political truths to be sacrosanct, to be areas that can't be touched. And so as technology gets better, there's going to be more and more areas that as a society, we have to actually confront and decide, is this something we we want to protect or is this something that we're okay with having, uh, having be monitored or controlled? So you're a lawyer, Adam, and uh, I know that you do some work for the JCCF. Do you also work at either your own company or just totally the JCCF? Uh, so uh, I have my own firm, but I do, uh, I receive my clients through the JCCF. So talk to me about that. What are some of, you know, this is an area of expertise for you. What are you seeing? What are you working at? What can you talk about as to what you are now uh, going to court about? Uh, well, most recently, uh, we've brought a uh, challenge to the ArriveCan app, so that uh, ties into this topic of digital ID, or at least in the extent uh, to which technology is being used to control uh, points of travel or uh, or to monitor people. Uh, and so we're, we're challenging the use of the ArriveCan app for a lot of the same concerns that people might be concerned about the use of uh, digital ID, namely the way it's being used uh, potentially to affect people's privacy. Uh, so. Uh, just uh, uh, explicitly, the use of a Rive cam requires people to disclose information about themselves. Uh, but more troublingly than that, uh, there's uh, there's information about the, about the app that we simply don't know. So the source code to the app has been protected as a trade secret. So it's not exactly clear what is being uh, what is being monitored by the app or what what information it collects about us. We uh, can't so know that. So if you want to install the app, I understand that uh, you have to grant it permissions to access location data. The government says that they are not, they're not looking at location data. That's not something they're collecting. That's the information we have without actually having people whose expertise is uh, looking at uh, coding and programming, look at the source code. Uh, it, it's not clear how the app is working or what it's collecting. So there could be a lot of things going on if they don't want citizens to know and they're protecting the source code, uh, then we have no idea what they could be doing or setting up for future. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that that maybe requires a certain amount of uh, or speculation or concern. But then there's also the issues with that the that the app uh, poses very explicitly. Uh, if someone again, a vaccinated person who has proof of vaccination wants to reenter the country, but just doesn't want to download the app, they're still subject to a two-week uh, quarantine, wow. a house arrest uh, that they have yeah. to remain in yeah. their house and they can't leave. If you, if someone is uh, sentenced to a house arrest, there's usually con conditions allowing for exceptions to go to the grocery store once a week, to uh, to attend church potentially, or to even go to work. None of that's an option if someone's ordered to quarantine uh, pursuant to these laws. So in the court cases that you're seeing, what's happening there? Are we winning? Is, is, how's the battle going? Uh, we're, we're very much in the midst of it right now. The thing about court and uh, part of the reason I said earlier that it's kind of the last line of defense is that courts are slow. 
Yeah. So there's uh, a lot that happened 2020, 2021. It's coming before the courts now. So, oh. for example, uh, one of the cases I'm working on is a uh, uh, defense of uh, some churches who are challenging Ontario's lockdown rules. So th this occurred back in 2020 and very early 2021. Uh, they only had their most uh, their first level of court at the beginning of this year. Uh, unfortunately, they lost. We've brought an appeal that's going to be heard at the end of this year. So uh, the thing with the court timeline is that uh, it, it's slow. But up to now, we've seen both victories and losses. Uh, there's think... plenty of tickets that have been withdrawn or dropped because they didn't have a strong basis. Uh, but on the flip side, there have been some disappointments in terms of the court uh, what I would say is failing to recognize uh, where rights have been infringed. So many people say, I'm just so tired of it, I don't want to watch it anymore. Uh, but they need to wake up and recognize that to not deal with this in the courts and to continue to push all of this through is to run the risk of having it all happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and one of the issues that has uh, arisen in respect of some of the Justice Center's cases is uh, the argument of mootness. So all these laws, or many of these laws, I should say, have been lifted to various degrees or suspended, as the government says. Uh, and so the government argues that this isn't an issue anymore. Uh, you know, you're arguing that the law should be overturned, but it's not enforced anymore. So what's the big deal? Uh, but exactly like you said, it can very easily happen again. And you just have to listen to the news to hear, uh, very, you know, whether it's uh, the prime minister or various other officials say, be careful, be careful. Winter's going to come around and we're going to have to put more restrictions in again. So 100% Canadians need to be on guard and need to fight these battles now, uh, especially while there's a kind of calm. In, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of everything there, it was kind of hard to get all the facts and to uh, to really give things a fair uh fair evaluation and a full evaluation but in the now in the calm is and it with the the advantage of retrospect is the time to do it so in closing Haddam, this has uh, been very interesting where can they go to see a lot of what is going on um, in the courts or jccf and the litigation teams to learn more about what's happening where can they go uh, I'd encourage people to visit our website, jccf.ca. They can see there are our news releases and reports that we uh, we publish. For example, the uh, the Road to Beijing report on digital ID that you referenced earlier. Uh, and if they're particularly concerned about the digital ID issue, people can visit nodigitalid.ca, which is a separate website uh, developed by the JCCF to specifically tackle this issue. Uh, and uh, follow us on all the usual uh, platforms, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you for being with us today. Okay, thank you for having me. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There you can subscribe to my newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. You'll be the first to know about fascinating conversations I've had recently and what my research team is working on. If you have a suggestion for the show or would like the reference material for this episode, use the link in the show notes. Experience Return to Reason. Get involved.